0: Great. Well, thanks, Renee. I was not prepared to do that, but I could do it because I, you know, really have a lot of great respect for our speaker today, Julie Bullock. She's uh, uh, helped so many churches when it comes to capital campaigns or giving initiatives or whatever the. She, I'm sure, she's going to give us the buzzwords that are out there. But uh, I've seen her in action. Um, I've seen her. Crack the whip on some of the largest pastors in America, and they don't uh, stray away from what she tells them to do. And that's why they have successful giving initiatives. But uh, uh, Julie's been a great friend of uh, me, a great friend of Solomon for years, and we're just grateful to have her on the call today. So, Julie, welcome. Mm-hmm.
1: Doug, thank you and Renee for that generous introduction. And it is just, it's such a privilege. I absolutely love this group of pastors and Doug is is right. I'm was so privileged to be uh, in the same, I think, was it the, my goodness, Michigan, some hotel in Michigan where one of the very first Solomon, uh, Solomon deals happened was a client of mine and, and a very good friend of all of ours. And so uh I've been privileged to be uh, a part of so many incredible visions that God has brought to fruition through through Doug's heart and his vision that God's given him and now it's just amazing others like Renee and just the the whole team at Solomon. So it's so fun to see so many faces that I know very well and then others that um meeting for the first time. So uh just a wonderful blessing to be with you today and um We'll we'll dive in. I've got a few slides I'll share with you, but I want it to feel very conversational. I want you to feel the freedom to interrupt and ask a question if you want or drop it in the chat and glad to do that as well. And then I'll even just kind of pause Um, a little bit of it will be intentionally interactive. Uh, So please feel feel freedom to do that. And um, just hope this is a fruitful time together. So just an honor to be with you guys. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Let me pray if I can. And then, um, yeah, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Mm -hmm. Heavenly father, thank you for this incredible tribe, this brotherhood and sisterhood of pastors and leaders that are seeking to serve you and seeing the value of doing that in community. So I just thank you even for these weekly zoom calls and just what they facilitate in that brotherhood. Uh, and, and sisterhood, God of just leaders seeking to please you seeking to further your kingdom, seeking to gain insights, uh, God from your word and from your people. And I pray that you would do that today in a way that only you can, Mm -hmm. would you give to each pastor and leader on this call, the insights that you would have for him or her in this next season? Uh, Would you show each one of us new insights from your word on the topic of generosity, both maybe for us personally, but also for the people that we lead? Um, God, we just, it it is our desire that people would look more like you in how they give and in how they live. And and God help us to be those that model that Uh, help the help us to be those that authentically are growing um, in that area ourselves Mm -hmm. so that we can lead others. And, uh, and just thank you for this time that we have to dedicate to this. It's in your name. We pray. Mm -hmm. Amen. Okay. Well, I'm going to do a screen share with, uh, some slides here. I will give these to you as well. So don't worry if you're trying, I mean, please feel free. I'm a big uh, you know, believer that you write and you hear and you say, and it increases your learning. So feel free to write notes, but I will give them to Renee as well, so that she can distribute them uh, to you also. So let me do a screen share right here and make sure that we can all see this. So let's do this right here, and then I'll go full screen. Mm-hmm. Everybody see the full screen? Yep, I see two thumbs up from Renee. That's good. Perfect. Okay. So our very first slide right here is an interactive one. So I want to ask this question. Does anybody have any idea what these numbers and these statements represent? Anybody want to take a stab at what we think the numbers and the corresponding statements might represent? Just feel free to either share it verbally or stick it in the chat, whichever you feel
2: more comfortable. the the percentage of christians who agree with the statement that's a great
1: guess that's a really good guess would these be something because they're all under 100 so it was are these percentages of like maybe a survey or something like that that's an awesome guess that's not what they are but i resonate with that as a viable guess great and thanks for breaking the ice to get us started
3: Julie, you have an amazing way of telling somebody that they're wrong. (laughs) Thank
1: you. Thank you. It's, you know, it's the love encouragement sandwich, right? (laughs) Thank
4: you. Is that the number of verses that go along with the statements out of the Bible?
1: That is also a great guess, because as we all know, there's over 2,000 passages of scripture, so it's conceivable that these would be the number of times that this is found um, in scripture. That isn't what it is, but that is conceivable. I could
2: see why you would guess that. I'll give you a clue. Note that the numbers are chronological. See if that helps. any else want to take a stab and if not i've got one more clue but last clue 41 years old hmm <laughs> So this would be the age that a person made these comments, but
4: I'm having a hard time seeing an eight-year-old have a golf ball business, although I suppose they could grab it from the water and sell balls at the side of the golf course. Is that what this is?
1: Brandon, excellent. So a couple of things. here. So spot on. This is actually part of my giving story. There's a lot more things. There's probably 80 different moments I could put on here, but I tried to pick What would be the most significant moments and ages? So the numbers are ages. You're exactly right. And different um, situations or moments where God taught me something about giving a biblical truth about giving through some type of a situation, through some type of a moment. So so for example, like Brendan said, uh, at eight years old, and I won't go through every single one of them, I'm just going to hit three of them here. I did have a golf ball business with my best friend, Emily. We grew up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, just on a Reiki dink municipal golf course on hole 14. And we would go into the creek, scoop out balls at the end of the night. On Saturdays, we would sell them at the 15th tee for 50 cents, 75 cents a dollar, if it was a Callaway for the golfers on the call. Uh, And we'd make a couple hundred bucks every weekend. So, uh, but we would split that very early on. My dad saw this happening and he taught me that giving needed to be a part of my financial picture at a very young age. Now, fast forward to age 23. Something that my dad did teach me that I would say was an incorrect piece of theology. And all of us know we learn both correct pieces of theology. And sometimes in our story, incorrect piece of theology and by God's grace, my dad and I have both been broken of this by now, but from a very early age, I was taught to save 50% of every dollar. That's not in scripture. It's not in Dave Ramsey either for the Dave Ramsey followers or other types of budgeting followers, maybe on the call but that was my dad. My dad grew up and maybe some of you can relate to this. He grew up in a household where you kind of had to hang on to everything or you might not have anything tomorrow. So, I grew up in that household, very fiscally conservative, we're big savers, we were not big spenders, but we were big savers. And so I was taught that from a very young age. In fact, um if you were to look at some of my um, correspondences, even in college, I went to Wheaton college, some of the, um, emails because that was some of the earlier days of, of, email, uh, to my dad, I would say, dad, did you look at my savings account? Are you proud of me, dad? And I had a little eight buck an hour job at the phone at Wheaton. That's, that was my fundraising start was, uh, calling alumni asking them for 20 bucks, but that was, that was my first fruit. My first fruit wasn't my giving. I was always a giver from a very early age. My first fruit and my focus was my fiscal conservatism. That's how I was raised. But at age 23, as you'll see on this moment, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I was a part of Community Christian Church in Chicago at the time when I was 23. And I was a part of my very first campaign. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the next campaign. And there was a couple on a video testimony. God used this video testimony to teach me about the idol of control. I'd mm. never heard it verbalized like this before. In fact, our beloved Tim Keller has spoken about this before. He he has um, he delivered an incredible message called "The Blessing of Giving" back in 6 I'll, I'll send Renee the link if you've if you've never watched this message. So he talks about the idol of control and i heard this couple verbalize it in a moment in an offering moment in a service that changed my life and my perspective on the fact that i had been operating you know money money's not your idol it reveals where your idols are and so mine had not been i didn't have an issue with overspending didn't have any issues with debt my idol was saving and there are some people in our churches they do not wrestle. They don't need financial peace university. They do not wrestle with overspending. They do not wrestle with the debt. It's not even a willingness to give, but they don't give at the proportions they could. They might even be giving very large amounts, but it doesn't represent their first and their best because they're actually operating under a, a, an idol of control of saving for tomorrow excessively. And here's the interesting thing about scripture. And this is so fascinating. There are far more passages in scripture cautioning us on over saving, of over-amassing the things of the earth and overvaluing them than passages encouraging us to save. And I want to say that again because sometimes we really do. We value, we need to have wise saving. And that is found in scripture. It's largely in Proverbs, is where most of those passages are found. And they are in there. That is accurate. That is true. But I will say this that the majority of passages related to the topic of saving of over amassing wealth on earth and amassing and valuing earthly things are cautionary Luke 12 the passage with the fool um with the building the bigger barns full your life's going to be demanded from you tomorrow and we keep keep amassing uh, this stuff first timothy 6 paul does not say not to have wealth he says don't put your hope in it more on that a little bit later Uh, Matthew 6, there's so many passages from Paul, from Jesus, even if we look back to uh, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 4, and even uh, David in 1 Chronicles 29, there are far more passages cautioning us on over-saving than passages encouraging us to save, which could give us a hypothesis that more people than we might think struggle with over-amassing value on the things of earth. Okay. I'll stop right there and say more about that in a minute. Fast forward all the way to age, uh, let's see, I'll go age 29 is when I purchased my first home. I mentioned this one in particular because so many people in our churches, and maybe some of us personally can relate to this. There are some big ticket decisions in our life that are difficult to reverse. They are possible to reverse, but they are difficult. And purchasing a home is one of the largest ticket decisions most people will make. And especially when people purchase their first home, not enough of them have guidance on the theology of first and what happens so quickly. And we probably have a friend of a friend. I'm sure none of us, but I'm sure a friend of a friend who all things are by their mortgage to their mortgage, through their mortgage and for their mortgage. And yes, I am parroting Colossians one and, uh, where the apostle Paul talks about, we all probably know this passage. He's refuting the heresy of the day when people were saying that Christ isn't the way he's a way to the father. Paul says, that's not true. That's heresy. Let me tell you the truth. Colossians one 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. All things have been created by him, to him, through him, for him, his before all things, all things been reconciled to him through his bloodshed on the cross. Very few people live their lives like that. Very few people give like that. Take giving off the table. Very few people organize their time like that. That's why we can't find people, enough people to serve in our kids' ministries. Most people, all things are either by their house, to their house, through their house and for their house or by their kids, to their kids, through their kids, and for their kids. Ouch. Uh, Myself included. Uh, Some people, everything is by their retirement, to their retirement, through their retirement, for their retirement. Everybody has something likely that is a driver in their life. Someone might even be giving a very large amount. It might even represent a very large percentage of their financial picture. But if you've ever said this statement, if I make this decision, some other things are going to be subservient to it. Some other things are going to have to change. Then that decision that you just made, whether it was sending a kid to college, buying a car, buying a house, investing in something, whatever it was, sending a kid to preschool, you made that decision and other things are being driven by it, then very easily all things suddenly become by it, to it, through it, and for it. And one of the very healthy things that we as pastors and leaders can do is help facilitate the theology of first for people, both through our giving, but honestly, through any area of our faith. And so I say that to say that for me, that was a real crux moment, that by God's grace, that was a lesson I did learn through a teaching that I had received. But I'm so passionate about that moment in life when people purchase their first home, because we all know that, that can get someone in a debt situation, an unhealthy mortgage situation that can significantly limit their giving and their impact for years. Fast forward to age 37, which is the final one I have on here. I could list a couple of others, probably. I could list several others. But one of the things, um, I got married at 35, had my first child at 37. And, uh, and this was something, I read an incredible book. It's called Money, God or Gift. It's by a guy named Jamie Munson. It's a phenomenal book that my husband and I both read, and it helped us to identify our relationship with money and what it said about us and our faith. And one of the things that even though we're good givers, I'm sure most of us on this call are good givers. God calls us to steward, not just a portion of our financial picture. He calls us to steward all of it. And so that has to do with how we spend. It absolutely has to do with how we save. But one of the things that that book through studying it, that God revealed to my husband and I is we had an unhealthy level of fear and worry related to our children. And at that point, one, one of our children, And I don't know if it's being older parents. I'm not sure if that's what it is. If, you know, I was 37, my husband at the time was 45. And so, you know, it's all relative, but we were pretty old to have a one-year-old to have a brand new baby. So maybe you just know too much and you worry too much, but we realized we were spending money effortlessly on things that the root cause of them was fear and worry. Those are not things of God. It doesn't mean we don't need to take care of our children. It doesn't mean that when they're sick, we shouldn't take them to the doctor, but only you and you know, and probably your spouse and definitely the Lord, if you're operating in an unhealthy level of fear and worry. And a lot of people's finances will follow unhealthy practices. So more for that on another day. Why do I share this slide? First of all, if you've never done this exercise personally, I want to encourage you to do it. I want to encourage you to identify the moments in your life that God has used a situation, a person, a moment to help teach you a biblical truth about giving. And unless you've known your spouse since, since they were three, I want to encourage you to do it with your spouse because it's likely that their moments are different than yours. And I think it'll help give you some insights about their background. Just like I shared that some of the things that I was taught, some were incorrect, some were wonderful. Some of us in our churches, some people in our churches need to be broken of incorrect theology. They grew up in a certain way. And for us to understand more about the moments they've experienced helped us to minister to them better. But the other point I want to make about this, besides just doing your own, is just the power of a moment itself. Giving is a journey. And sadly, because it's quantifiable, sometimes we think we've arrived. Sometimes we think it's an all or nothing proposition. Are you a giver or are you not? Are you generous or are you not? Are you a tither or are you not? And it's far more complex than that. You don't just learn the theology of first one time. First means something different when you're buying your first home than when it does when you have two parents in a nursing home without some type of medical insurance. It first means something different when you have kids in preschool than when you have kids in college first means something different when you're in a wealth accumulation stage in a job or whether you're in a retirement stage, the theology of first is something we always have to teach our people, the theology of surrender, the theology of sacrifice. These are timeless biblical principles that are applied in different seasons of life differently. And God can use a moment, a season, a person, a situation To teach us along this giving journey. Okay, so a couple of things just even to set up um, another correlating premise. First of all, when we think about the local church, the local church has the unique privilege that no other nonprofit, non church entity has, even faith based, even a Christian college. A faith-based nonprofit does not have this privilege right here. So even a faith-based food pantry or a faith-based effort of any kind, they are called to advance. They're called the mission advancement, the right side of this slide. They are called to share where the giving is going to, to cast the vision of where the funds are going, and to continue to call people to alleviate poverty in this county in Jesus' name. And they do it well. The church has a unique privilege and we are the only ones called to do it. We are called to disciple people. And that doesn't stop with the area of generosity. And in fact, I would say, especially in the area of generosity, because sometimes it gets forfeited at the expense of the right side of the screen. Sometimes when we're trying to advance the mission, we do so stumbling over and tripping over the opportunity we have to disciple people. And scripture teaches us, directly against that. When you look at the two um I'll say it this way we we mentioned earlier there were more than 2000 passages about giving in scripture. We all probably know that. But the longest continuous teaching on giving is found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. There's teaching all over scripture on giving, but the longest continuous passage is in those two chapters when if you know the context the apostle Paul is receiving multiple offerings from the church at Corinth. Anybody know where it's going? Anybody know the destination of those offerings? Where they're going? Jerusalem. That's right on, spot on, yes. Going to Jerusalem. And somebody
2: tell me the characteristic of the church in Jerusalem at this time, economically. Well, it's kind of strapped with refugees. Good, good. So financially, anything financially you would characterize about the church of Jerusalem in this time? Poor saints. Yes, that's exactly right, Kent. Yes, they they were poor. They were poor. And
1: so the church at Corinth, I'm sure we all know our geography, was located across the Mediterranean Sea, still is, located across the Mediterranean Sea from Jerusalem. And so these people in Corinth, which they were not, characterized by poverty the church in corinth was not characterized by uh, a severe trial that's that's not characteristic of them but in the first chapter that we are talking about here in second corinthians 8 paul utilizes the story of the churches in macedonia a different region than corinth the three churches in macedonia were sorry you didn't know it was going to be a pop quiz just trying to make sure we're all staying awake
2: Anybody know one or two of the three churches in Macedonia that Paul talks about second Corinthians eight? Philippi. Them. Yes, Philippi. Yes.
1: And Philippi is my favorite because we find actually in Philippians four that they were one of the best givers. They were characterized as one of the best giving churches. Paul says, you're even, you were even better than Thessalonica and Thessalonica was one of the second churches in the region of Macedonia. They were good givers, but Paul says, Philippi, you were even better. Anybody
2: know who the third one is? This one's a little more challenging. Starts with a B. I don't Bar- Bar-ola. I don't know how to pronounce it. That's why I didn't say it. I'm sorry. Yes,
1: Megan. <laughs> Megan, no, that's great. Berea. Yes, Berea. Yes. Spot on, spot on. So these three churches, as Paul tells us in the early chapter of second Corinthians eight verses one through five, he tells this incredible story of these churches that they were going through a severe trial. They were in a season of poverty. Scholars have told us that those churches were not always in poverty, but in this season that they were, one would think they'd be exempted from giving, right? Oh, they're going through a hard time. I can't ask them to give. And yet they pleaded for the privilege to be able to give. They gave on their own accord, beyond their ability, in their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. So much so, it's one of the greatest passages. I'm sure you've all preached on it. And then Paul says in verse seven, he says, see to it that you too, church at Corinth, who are not in poverty, by the way, see to it that you too excel in this grace of giving, just like you excelled in all faith, speech, knowledge, and earnestness. So what's my point in this? In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see about this much, like one half of one verse telling us where the giving is going. We mostly know it's going to Jerusalem because of other passages and part of one passage that tells us that in 2 Corinthians nine twelve, I believe, but the whole 99.9% of those two chapters is discipling the heart of the giver, doing the giving. In fact, Paul always did that. Paul was a church planter. So he was always asking for funds all the time. But he always took time to preach, not secondarily, primarily to shape the heart of the giver. Why? Because he was forming the local church. This was the early stages of the local church. We see Jesus doing the exact same thing. You can even go back to the Old Testament in one of the very first campaign concerted efforts, which is David raising funds for Solomon to build the temple in First Chronicles 29. And you see that even in first chronicles 29, Old Testament. When all those funds are being raised, you see in verse nine, the people rejoiced. Why? At the exorbitant amount of the giving? No, they rejoiced at the willingness, the freedom, and the wholeheartedness of the leaders that have gave. In fact, David goes on to reiterate, Lord, you're pleased with a heart of integrity. That whole passage isn't about the amounts that were given or what was going to be accomplished. It was about the heart of the giver doing the giving. So what I want to encourage us in on this slide is as church leaders and pastors, We are the ones with the responsibility and with the privilege to disciple people on the topic of of generosity. It's not the nonprofit's job to do that. It's not the Christian college's job to do that. I'm not saying it won't happen. It's just not what they're called to do. It absolutely is called is what we're called to do. And if we do it right, all boats should rise. If we do it right, people should give more to those other kingdom causes. And they should be giving more to our church. Why? Because we're shaping and increasing their whole charitable pie. So much more I could say. Okay. Uh, Secondly, on this topic, as we're thinking about the topic of shaping the heart of a giver, Couple of things, just as we're thinking about what our role is in that. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I want to kind of major on it here for a moment. It's this notion of inputs and outputs. And it's so key and foundational, this topic, because there are few areas of our faith that are quantifiable like this. We could quantify them. We just don't. So the really unfortunate thing about giving, if you look at the screen, is that we can easily quantify it by amount, or by percentage. And let me ask you this. When we look at giving records in our churches and we say this phrase, wow, look at Bob and Amy. They are really growing in their giving. What do
2: we mean? What do we usually mean whenever we say that? We usually mean they're giving more. That's what we usually mean when we
1: say that phrase. We've all been guilty of it. I've done it. You look at a giving records and you're, Wow, look at the Johnsons. They are really growing in their giving. Or maybe we know that they've increased their percentage. Wow, For their, they are really growing in their giving. Now, here's the thing that saves us and possibly our accuracy of that is that I would say most, most of the time when someone's giving a larger amount or giving a larger percentage, most of the time, that is true, that there is some type of spiritual input that likely has correlated with that most of the time. But it's also possible they're just making more money. It's also possible they just have less expenses. But what's actually more likely is the converse, meaning what happens when a two-income household goes to a one-income household because somebody stays home to take care of the kids? Or because somebody starts volunteering and now receiving no pay for a job they previously received pay for. Or somebody goes full-time to part-time and a household's financial picture actually goes down. Or or maybe it's not about income. Maybe it's about expenses. They didn't have any kids in college and now they have three kids in college at the same time. I wouldn't even want to know what that feels like. Some of you may know what that feels like. That feels very financially full, Uh, but a full blessing, I'm sure. All of that to be said, what happens when that two-income household goes to a one-income household? Their amount of giving may go down, legitly. Uh, their percentage may even go down. Maybe they were giving 18%, and now they're giving 12%. All those things are conceivable, even likely, I would say. Can they still grow in their giving in that season? Can that family grow in their trust? If you've ever been in a season like that, that's exactly... What you should be doing. You should be growing in your trust. In fact, when people lean into God, they do grow in their trust. Can they grow in their surrender? Absolutely. They can grow in their surrender. Can they grow in the theology of first? Absolutely. But here's what the sad thing is because so often, because giving is quantifiable, we measure it, we often are guilty of two different things. You'll see them on the screen output pride or output oppression. Both of these two things prevent us from engaging on inputs. They threaten to prevent us from engaging on inputs. And here's what I mean by that. There are some givers, and I bet some of us as seasoned Christ followers have been guilty of this a time or two, that we do this. We pat ourselves on the back. You know what? This Boy, this conversation is great. I wish my buddy was here to hear this, but like, I get this. In fact, like 20% of us, we totally get this. If the other 80% of our church would give like... of us do, we wouldn't even be having to have this conversation. And because giving is quantifiable, we don't do this outwardly. I believe we don't go around outwardly saying, I triple tithe, or I give more than most people in my age and stage. I don't think any of us say that outwardly. I think we absolutely do it inwardly. I think we often say, I'm giving more than I gave last year. We're giving a pretty large percentage for our situation. I highly doubt anyone in my age and stage with our number of kids is doing what we're doing. And because it's quantifiable, we value it like that. And Jesus literally cautions against this in Luke 18. Luke 18 is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you know the story, the Pharisee, which Pharisees were by definition, notorious for touting their outputs. And he says, Lord, I'm justified before you, right? I give a 10th of all I get and I fast twice a week. And that's what he says. He literally, but by the way, the tithe is mentioned twice in the new Testament by Jesus once in a cautionary way. So it's not irrelevant. The tithe is not irrelevant. It's still very relevant, helpful biblical guidepost, but Jesus is very clear here that he's not interested in an output void, void of an input, not, not interested in behaviors alone, void of a heart motivation because of what happens next. The, the tax collector by contrast, beat his breast looks up to heaven in this surrendered posture. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus said that man, the tax collector, went home justified before God, not the Pharisee. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. What's he talking about? He's talking about output pride. He's talking about behavioral pride. Your behaviors, your outputs can cause you to be prideful because of those outputs alone. Now, here's what Jesus did not say. He did not say tithing wasn't important, never came out of his mouth. He also didn't say fasting wasn't important. So he never negated those outputs. We should never say, and if you've ever said this, just don't say it again. We should never say, it's not about the money. It's about the heart. Don't say that. That is not true. Uh, It's not scriptural. That's like if we were to say, and forgive the example, but it's like if you were to say, it doesn't matter if you cheat on your spouse, as long as your heart is right. I'm sorry. That's not okay to do. And I'm not talking about forgiveness and the grace of God. I'm talking about a repeated behavior that you would do, uh, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the body behaves. So yes, it matters. Both matter. The heart matters. And what comes out of the heart matters. So we don't want to ever say it's not about the money. It's about the heart. No, it's about both, but one drives the other. In fact, if you've ever counseled someone through an infidelity situation, or even through somebody maybe having, um, premarital sex, if you've ever counseled somebody through those situations, what do you do? You start with the heart. Okay. What's driving this behavior. Let's talk about this. Let's figure out what's behind all this. You don't just start with the behavior. Legalistically, you start with what's behind it. That's Jesus's point. He never said the behavior wasn't important or the output wasn't important. He's talking about, he's not interested in an output void of an input. The flip side of that is the oppression. And what I mentioned earlier about there are people in our churches, they either, it's just the economic hand they've been dealt, like the woman with the two coins, or it's the season that they're in, like the churches in Macedonia in second Corinthians eight, that were being talked about by Paul. Philippi Thessalonica and Berea and sometimes people are just in a season of economic hardship we've probably all been through them whether it's just the hand you've been dealt or the season that you're in and both of these two things the interesting thing about scripture is not only are people in output oppression not exempted from giving they're heralded for giving Despite that, and actually in that season, woman with the two coins, that was the point of that story. She exhibited the theology of surrender by giving all that she had that the, the, uh, the, the churches that we just talked about in Macedonia. So not only does Jesus and Paul specifically take time to make sure that output oppression doesn't hinder us from growth, but they actually celebrate people operating in these spiritual inputs of surrender and sacrifice even in a season of economic oppression. So what are these things on the left? We've mentioned several of them. And you could, I could probably put 18 different ones right here. This is a call of pastors. I bet you could mention 25. Uh, but these are biblical truths found in scripture. And here's what we are responsible for as pastors and leaders. We are responsible for the left side of the equation. We can't change someone's economic situation. It is what it is. We can pray for it. We can help them not feel hindered by it. We are responsible for discipling them on the left side of the equation. And someone can learn and grow in their understanding of the theology of first, regardless of their season of life regardless of their economic situation and here's the here's the honest truth and I think this was Jesus and Paul's point you know whenever uh it's said that it's it's tougher to get um for a rich man to get through uh, to heaven through the eye of a needle I'm I'm butchering it up uh than it is for um it's tougher for a rich man to get in heaven somebody quote it for me pastors Uh, you know, the passage I'm talking about, about how challenging that it is. And that's the whole story of the rich young ruler is the fact that oftentimes to be sacrificial and to be fully surrendered as somebody who has more is actually more, more challenging. And so often as pastors, we look at the right side of the equation. We even will sometimes overthink and give over gratitude to those that give a large amount those that give a large percentage when actually what they might need from us is challenging the heck out of them based on scripture is teaching them about the theology of eternal perspective. See, going back to first Timothy six, which we just kind of skirted over a little bit ago, Paul doesn't say not to have wealth. There's nowhere in scripture that says wealth is bad and poverty is good. That's that's a incorrect theology that some people have. That's not in scripture. But what Paul says is he says, don't put your help, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God who richly provides all things for your enjoyment, teach people to be generous and willing to share and in. So they'll lay up for themselves treasures in heaven, take hold of this life that is truly life. That is the theology of eternal perspective. If you've ever read anything by Aunt Randy Alcorn, and I'm sure we've all read The Treasure Principle. We may not have all read Randy Alcorn's other book that's about this thick. Treasure Principle is a wonderful, packed read that's that's chock full of so much truth. Uh, money, possessions, and eternity outside of scripture itself is probably the most shaping book I've ever read that's influenced my own theology on eternal perspective related to our stuff, related to money, possessions, and eternity, exactly its title. And if you haven't read it, it's a thick read, but I'd highly encourage it because there are people in our churches, they might be some of our best givers by numeric measures, but they need a pastor to help challenge them on what the word of God says related to their wealth related to possibly even what I was saying earlier about over amassing and overvaluing the things of earth. And so when we think about leading people in the theology of first eternal perspective, trust, surrender, and in fact, I even put some of these on a slide for you here, I'll give to you. Some of you I know are very astute on this subject and could do some of this as well. We want to be teaching people about these truths, and how it relates in their life right now, and whatever comes out on the other end numerically is going to be a product of their understanding and application of these truths, plus their situation. And so, somebody giving eighty percent is no closer to God get, than giving somebody somebody giving twenty percent. That person might just make a lot of money and have less expenses. That's not evaluating. It's not an up and to the right correlation. I think it's amazing. That Rick Warren reverse tithes and not to pick on Rick Warren because we all know he's amazing. And there are incredible spiritual inputs behind the decision that he makes to reverse tithe. But let's just be honest for a second. That's not mathematically possible for most people. It's not. It's not even the goal. The goal is not to give away as much as possible and to live on as little as possible. That's not found in scripture. The goal is total stewardship. God's the owner. We're the manager. And so what that might look like for somebody might be stewarding their house differently, not that they're supposed to sell their house, but they're supposed to use their house differently. It might mean for somebody else that they're supposed to use, their going out to eat budget differently and more strategically and more honoring to God. The point isn't the amount or the percentage, it's the total stewardship and us leading people in these biblical principles. Okay, so much more I could say, but I am going to respect our time and I'm going to I want to allow for some time for any additional dialogue, but I want to land us on just an incredibly encouraging passage out of Hebrews 12, um, just encouraging us on really this cloud of witnesses and that Jesus has gone before us. He has set the race marked out for us. And so I just want to read this to us as an encouragement and then just kind of open it up for anything final. And then I believe Wes is going to pray for us at the end. I think Dr. Wes, Uh, we don't want to be church centric, just all vision all the time. We actually don't want to be so giver centric that the tail is wagging the dog. We always want to be Christ centric. We want to be Jesus centric. And so in this passage, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the father, God, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Be encouraged. I know this is a difficult and polarizing topic. I pray that our um, approach today was refreshing and hopefully something that energizes you personally towards discipleship of your people. Um, and love to take any
2: questions, reflections before Dr. West closes us up. So thank you. I uh, I would say amen. And uh, since you almost revealed your age, I can really say, young lady, you need to write a book. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you so much.
4: Yeah, I think she did reveal her age. That was 41. <laughs> I want to say thanks. I also want to say thanks. And it's it's cool. Uh, you were in college uh, at Wheaton while I was in high school. And I was going to a, a church that was hyper-Calvinistic and hyper-legalistic where actually Barnabas Piper went there. He was my mentor for a short period. And we thought the big yellow box church was of the devil. We were taught that. So I think that's just so much fun to learn that. And obviously my my views have changed. But I want to say thank you and ask a question. Could you um, uh, define the theology of first a little bit more for us? I don't think I quite fully understood that.
1: Absolutely. That's such a great question, because I will say this, there's so many incredible biblical truths in scripture related to giving. If I were to say which one I've seen most be most transformational, it's this one. And one of the biggest reasons why is most people think they're doing it and they're actually not. So the theology is first is sometimes erroneously taught as merely first in order. Now, first in order means it's the first that I give the first check you know, out of my paycheck or the first auto draft, you know, as an electronic giver. And first of all, that is biblical. That's first Corinthians 16. So that's good. Paul does say at the first part of the week, set aside a portion for the Lord. Uh-huh. So first in order is biblical. but first in priority is a whole nother matter. That's Matthew six thirty three. That's Genesis four, which we, which we didn't talk about explicitly, but presumably we all know. Cain and Abel, before there was a killing story, there was a giving story. And it's actually quite powerful. Abel tending flocks, Cain tended fields. Cain essentially was a December giver in our modern day context, not to judge. We don't need to judge December givers because they might be giving their first and best for the next year. Not our position to judge. It is our position to lead, however. And Cain very clearly gave the first and the fattest. And if you know anything about livestock, he gave the first and the fattest, not knowing if the rest of the flock would get diseased, not knowing if they would get stolen. Some people in our church say, you know what? I can't, I can't give a commitment card or I don't, I, I don't know what I can give this year. I'm on commission. Can I just kind of, you know, see how the year goes and give whatever comes in to which I would say, what did you say to your bank when you bought your house? Like, what did you say to that guy? Like, did you say, you know what? I can't sign this mortgage document. I'm on commission. Like I sell used cars. I'm in construction. Like my income is really uncertain. Can I just kind of give you 8% of whatever comes in, you know, as it comes in? No, man, you can't have this house. (laughs) And these mortgage brokers are experts at the theology of first. They're experts at it. Why do they want you to sign that document? They want that mortgage to be a priority for you. In fact, they want all things to be by it, to it, through it and for it. And they're quite successful in most households in America. Our role is not only on the topic of giving because we, because Colossians one is not a giving passage. Genesis four is Colossians. One is much bigger than that. You can take this to a whole serving message about why people don't serve. It's because everything is by something else to something Buy by my kid's sports schedule to it by my Sunday morning brunch schedule. Whatever people are prioritized by my family time to my family time, whatever is driving their inability to have time for the Lord. But it's absolutely true of giving. And most people give in a leftover model like Cain, Cain waited until the harvest had been produced. And it says he gave God some. Here's the interesting thing. We do not know. Scripture does not tell us if the crops that Cain gave was a larger amount or a larger percentage Than the livestock Abel gave, we do not know scholars haven't told us the scripture doesn't told us what we do know other than industry. The only other difference in the, in those two men's giving is Cain gave leftover Cain gave after the harvest had all been produced and Abel, Abel gave first. He gave the first and the fattest, the first and the best. And in verse five, it says, God rejected Cain's gift or the the nicer translations. God didn't, did not look with favor upon Some say rejected, some say did not look with favor upon Cain's gift, looked with favor upon Abel's. In fact, some of, you know, in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, that passage is talked about again and reiterated of how different those men's offering were. My point is we need to lead people to not be leftover givers. And most people they'll approach a season of giving in your church. And they'll ask themselves this question. And and this is a better question than saying, I don't want to give it all. But they'll say, honey, what can we afford to give in this season? I'm really excited about what Scott and Beth are doing at East Point. What can we do? I think it's really a great thing. What can we do? And they'll ask that question. And what the rest of that sentence is, is in light of everything we're already committed to, hey, what can we afford to give to to, uh, discovery in this season? I'm really excited what Matt and Janie are doing. What can we do in this season? In light of everything we're already committed to and that question what can we afford to give it's it's a cane question the able question that we don't need to lead them to is lord everything's on the table i want to honor you with 100 of it what looks like first and best for our household in this season and lord show us that you know us you know our household you know our whole situation what would mean first and best for our household would you show us that Would you give us the boldness to be able to fulfill that? Very few people actually live that out and we can lead them to do so.
4: Thanks for elaborating. That was
0: very helpful. Great teaching this morning, Julie. And it warms my heart to know that you come from Community Christian Church, the Ferguson brothers. They grew up in the church where my father was an elder, Park Forest South Christian Church. And uh, I've got really good memories of uh, those boys growing up and just watching what the Lord has done with that ministry in Naperville,
1: that's so amazing, Ken. I love how tightly woven this the the world is, especially our Restoration Movement tribe. But it's just incredible. Those men, I loved working with them for years. They're amazing.
0: Really, really proud of your uh, of the fact that you are from our tribe and have the depth of Bible teaching on this important subject that you do. Thanks for sharing. Thank you, kid. Uh Julie, this is a question for you. Where, what are you seeing uh, post-COVID and giving trends?
1: It's a great question. I, if I were to sum it up in a couple of brief statements, one, I would say less people are giving more. So if I look at almost every church across the board, uh, there are with few exceptions, less giving units post-COVID than pre-COVID. There's some exceptions, churches that are in campaigns and things like that, that have specifically cultivated more giving units. But if they're not in a campaign and it's just kind of business as usual, you know, they're they're even regardless of attendance, even, we're seeing less giving units, but more per unit giving. So that's a huge trend that we're seeing. Obviously, people are combating that through giving initiatives and other giving efforts to try to broaden the base of givers. But I think a big part of that is, you know, COVID kind of weeded out some kind of peripheral people, which is sad because we want to reach those people. We don't just want the givers in our churches. We actually want the non-givers. That's who we want. We want to grow them. So, it's 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 not a great trend, but it's something that I think we're actively trying to combat as those people do grow more. So that's one trend. The other thing I would say Doug is um obviously as we look at some high capacity giving, What's happening with stocks? And, and, and I hope it will look better. It continues to kind of creep upward and look a little better, but we've definitely seen some conservatism of people holding back and less giving from securities, from marketable securities in the last couple of years. I hope that will improve, obviously. But um, that's a trend. And, you know, we're not really seeing any type of recessionary effect by and large. I would just say we're seeing a softening of some giving, but nothing like 0809 uh, whatsoever. So those are just a couple of observations.
0: Excellent, excellent. Great, any other any other questions for Julie? You got her here now, this is your chance. And again, uh, we recorded this, so obviously I know I'm gonna go back and listen to it in detail um, and, uh, be, and it's just great information. So well done. Julie, uh, can you can you share your information so that we can contact you privately with some questions?
1: Absolutely. Definitely. I'll just drop it right here in the chat. It is really easy. It's julie at generis.com. And I'll even put myself, if you have a quick question via text, you're welcome to do that as well. So both of those two things are in the chat. Uh,
3: julie, um, just interested in your thoughts on The concept of tithe splitting. Uh, There are a lot of people that give, they give generously, but they split it between the church and a whole host of other uh, worthy entities. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Personally, I know there's so many different thoughts on this, but I would just say personally, I do believe that the tithe is for the local church. Um, and, And I know there's different interpretations of that. That would be my personal interpretation of that. Going back, though, to that slide where we were talking about what our role is as pastors. Our role, though, would never be to compete. We should never try to think of ourselves as competing for kingdom resources. And sometimes we don't mean for it to come across this way, but we'll say, you know, well, boy, we're competing this in town and this in town, and these people are doing a campaign, and we should never see ourselves that way. We should see our role as expanding a believer's charitable pie, as expanding their stewardship, so that when we disciple them well, all boats rise, and so that we wouldn't necessarily, if they're splitting their tithe between compassion and our church that we would be able to expand their charitable heart so that it's not that we're trying to take from compassion's portion or from whoever, whoever they're giving to, but that we're supposed to expand their pie so that all boats will rise. So that's my that's my personal interpretation of scripture is that it would be, that it goes into the local storehouse, but but that we would never be asking a giver to stop giving to a kingdom enterprise. Um, that our role is to help expand Uh, their charitable pie and their stewardship.
0: Excellent. One other question for you, Julie. Uh, I know my wife and I, we started uh, the Crozier Family Donor Advice Fund a couple years ago, and we're building that fund uh, every year. I'd uh, love your opinion on donor advice funds for families.
1: That's incredible, Doug. There's so many benefits to a family setting up a donor advice fund. And, and I know some on the call probably very familiar with that tool. Others, maybe not as much just in, in short, there's a lot of different entities like National Christian Foundation, even secular entities like Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund, where you can set up. It's essentially a family foundation um, where you're able to deposit assets into the fund and then distribute them to different charitable entities they're most advantageous for people for a variety of different scenarios one it sometimes creates a family legacy so as i might imagine with a family like the crozier's that have a deep heart for generosity many families will set it up in a way that then their heirs can also benefit from learning charitable giving from that same exact fund and it can go on for years Secondly, a benefit from it, it does grow tax-free. So when you put assets into it, you cannot take them out for a non-charitable purpose. So you can't take them back. That's why it grows tax-free. So that's the benefit of the the growth of it. You put it in, whoever you're investing it with, National Christian Fidelity, there's lots of different entities, investment, Solomon, probably. Solomon Solomon.
0: Foundation, yes.
1: Of course, (laughs) the best place for the return on your investment how could I? How could I miss Solomon? Obviously, what probably the highest return, I would imagine. Six percent.
0: Uh, yeah, we offer six percent
1: that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. So when you set up a donor advice fund, it's able to grow tax-free. You're also able to set up a family legacy. The other thing that sometimes is advantageous for a lot of people is if they have a liquidation event that they are going to be taxed on. So for example, I remember. 06, 07, there were all these private equity buyouts where people that had shares of stock in different companies were forced to liquidate it when somebody was buying their company. There's probably people in our churches that go through different sales of assets. Maybe they sell a home. They sell a piece of real estate. And as you know, if you sell a piece of real estate or even sell stock, you're going to get hit with capital gains. And so a lot of times transferring that asset into a donor advised fund without getting into all of the tax details is very advantageous from a tax standpoint, but you might not know where you want, you might not want to give it all right away. And so it's a way for you to plant it, investment, invest it and give it out as you would. And different funds have different disbursement requirements. The IRS even has a few disbursement requirements. But um, the key is to have a place with a good trusted return and uh, and good management. But it's a very powerful charitable investment tool that can create a great legacy for a family as well.
0: It's like a, I call it a, a charitable checkbook.
1: I love that. Yes, that's exactly it. I love it. I love it. And it's pretty amazing when it can grow tax-free. I mean, what, what an incredible way, because a lot of people say, oh, let me just manage my own money. Well, you're being taxed on that, you know. Just, just FYI. And so it's really helpful, whether it's money you would put in on a regular basis or when you have the sale of an asset to not incur those capital gains, not have to give it all in that year, put it in here, let it grow, give it as you would. Very advantageous.
0: Excellent. We'll take any other questions for Julie. We'll take another one. If anybody's got a question. Okay. If, uh, if not, uh, Dr. West, take it away. Any
3: comments before you pray us out, Dr. West? Yes, I do have a comment. Uh, We, a culture is mandating uh, and has set aside the entire month of June to celebrate and affirm pride month. And, that we're being asked to celebrate something that is antithetical to god's uh, uh, God's design and God's will for our lives. The last thing we want is to is to uh, reinforce culture's already erroneous perception that the church is just full of uh, people who are uh, judgment oriented. But on the other side of things we are uh, being asked by culture to uh to affirm something that is in that is outside of God's will so I'm just uh, going to say all of us uh, ministry leaders out there we do um, uh, we don't need all cultural ducks to be aligned in order for us to minister well in fact uh, when when culture is um, is uh, promoting uh such darkness we can be we can be a light uh in that context and so i'm just going to pray for all of us pray for wisdom that we'd be able to navigate this um and uh do it in a in a way of grace uh that does uh, two things uh that upholds our commitment to the word of god and number 2 Uh, helps us to be able to minister to those who are lost in that world. Uh, And uh, so let me lead us in prayer. Father God, thank you so much that you have called us to ministry. And there are so many moving parts. There's the whole financial piece that Lord God, Julie has uh, done such a wonderful job in, in leading us through your scripture and uh, through great wisdom that comes from you. Uh, we also, Lord, realize that we are in a culture that in, oftentimes is asking us to celebrate things that are, that, are, uh, that are not of you. And so, Father, we pray for wisdom that we'd be able to minister well uh, in this season And Lord, that we would be a light uh, that people are so desperately searching for in all these other areas. So Lord God, I thank you for the Solomon Foundation that has provided this forum. Lord, thank you for Renee and her team that has so devoting, uh, with so much devotion, uh, continued to minister through this avenue. Uh, Lord, continue to Uh, give us wisdom to be great ministry leaders in such a time as this. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
2: Amen.